We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. On a day when so many things can be said, the most important thing we can say is, we love you, Bukayo. We absolutely love you. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. It is a shame that there are terrible people in the world, and they do terrible things, and that is not news to anybody. But maybe the bigger shame is that they also get the headlines. Um, There was an old saying uh, in the news business, if it bleeds, it leads, basically saying, you know, if there was some kind of violent, gory action that was taken, then that, that should be the headline. And while I think that we will discuss some unfortunate behavior, we'll also discuss football, we'll also discuss transfers, we'll also discuss Arsenal coming back to preseason tomorrow. Um, one of the things we're going to be discussing is Bukayo Saka missing the penalty that, that does wind up costing England the Euros, giving it to Italy, and congrats to Italy fans listening, and then the subsequent reaction. And what I will say is that while I know there is some despicable reaction that has occurred, overwhelmingly, what I see, is an outpouring of love and support. Now, I know that is not everything, and I know that that the other stuff exists, and it's terrible, and we need to address it. But the thing that I do feel at least reassured by is the massive tidal wave of support for a a wonderful young man, uh, a future star for Arsenal and for England, and someone we will be blessed to watch for many, many years to come, starring hopefully at our club and definitely for his country. So uh, my sentiment on this day is that we love you, Bukayo, that obviously bigger and better things await you and that you have the love and support of all good and decent people out there, uh, whether listening to this podcast or not. The fact that we have to address some of the other stuff, that's a shame and we will do it. No housekeeping today. Let's just get on to the the fallout, the post-match, post-tournament reaction, and then look ahead to Arsenal. And we'll do that with Tim. You can find him on Twitter at Storbettle. Hello, Tim. Hello there. And Paul, you can find him on Twitter at Pause My Pants. Hello, Pause. And Clive, you can find him on Twitter at Clive PFC. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. Clive, I think, um, you know, I want to just dive right into the Bakayo part of this, and we can maybe roll back to the England thing. I will say if you want like a full post-match analysis of the actual game, literally the podcast right before this one on this feed is the Euro 2020 Daily I did with Phil where we talked about the game tactically. But the Bukayo thing, there's a lot of angles I want to come at it from. Let's set aside the reaction first and, and, and just deal with the fact that he took the penalty. It is an incredible display of courage and, and confidence 
for a 19-year-old who has never taken a penalty in his senior career, as far as I'm aware, to step up to the spot as the fifth penalty taker with all of that on the line, even just the manner in which it happens, because it looks like Jorginho may have snuck it past Pickford, but he hasn't. And then does it bounce off Pickford's head? No, he gets it. And like England are alive again. It's such a, a febrile atmosphere and a tense situation. And for a 19-year-old to feel willing to even step up and do that in the face of more senior players, more experienced players not being willing or, or certainly seemingly not willing, I think it says everything about his character. I think there's some people that will say it's a terrible penalty. My attitude about penalties is as the pressure mounts and ratchets up, the muscles get tighter, the margins get finer, sticking it in the corner gets harder. And the one thing you don't want to do is what Rashford did, obviously, which is not even give it a chance by putting it on target. You want to hit it hard, pick your spot, and have it be on target. That's the first responsibility, and he does that. Donnarumma guesses the right way, and from there, it's not a good penalty, and it's easy to save. If he guesses the wrong way, then there's nothing to it. So let's just start with your reaction to him stepping up there, and whether you feel more a sense of immense respect for him having that courage or a sense of immense frustration with the people that allowed a 19-year-old having never taken a senior penalty to be in that spot in the first place. Yeah, probably all of that, really. Uh, I think there's a bit of all of that. I, I think what Southgate has shown is a real sense of planning. This this was look planned the whole way along. You know, how the players have lived at the St. George's, the group, the environment, the culture within the group, everything has been in place, been put in place over many years. Um, the introduction of the legacy caps to try to create almost like a rugby-like environment to make sure people realise their place in England's history. This is not stuff you do overnight. And anything looks so planned, so planned. We get to the point where you know when Rashford missed a penalty, and that was the moment for me when self-doubt sort of rushed over me because I've seen Rashford put loads of penalties away, and he's very good at them. And the fact that he missed, I thought, oh gosh, that's a problem. And Sancho misses and we... And then when when uh, Pickford makes a save and the screen flashes up Saka's face walking, I don't know... Well, I don't know anybody that felt confident. You know, also we know more Arsenal people. Just frozen horror, really. <clears throat> because how can you be so planned, whether you agree with Southgate's system, how he plays and how how pragmatic he is, at least he seems to know what he's doing. Then suddenly you have a situation where you've got a 19-year-old, the second youngest member in the squad, the youngest player probably to play in the final nearly for England ever, and you have him taking the fifth penalty. Now, there's no scientist coming. If he had scored and we'd won, say it decided penalty, that is also quite traumatic for a 19-year-old. Now, for the rest of his life, he'd have reached a mountaintop. You know, so to have a 19-year-old, either way the coin falls, have that on him, positive or negative, to me, he's, he's pretty poor. I have to say that. It's really poor. I think, I don't care who he is, I just think it's not right because we don't forget things. I mean, Southgate's 25 years now since he missed his penalty, and you can tell he's still carrying the demons. So I can't believe he was put in that situation. And um, I said it online, as a young Spanish player, I said it before at one of our podcasts, Pedri was taken off in a Yep. You know, extra time because he didn't want, he didn't, well, I don't know if he's taken penalties. I just thought it was a nice thing to do. He's the future of their team. He, he don't want that near him, you know, and, we, and we've done that. And so I'm disappointed 
But I will say, I'm not going to. Well, I'm choosing not to sit in this um, this pit of wallow and self pity and etc. About the reaction or the rest of it, because I prefer to focus on the positives. And mm. with Saka, we have we have something special at Arsenal Football Club with that kid. We really do, you know. And I want to focus on that. I want to focus on him as an individual. What you, you know, what he represents, how he carries himself, how he's integrated in that squad, how he's you know basically made senior players look to him, how he's trained himself into that squad. He's taken people out of the hierarchy. He's got ahead of them based on how he trains and how he plays. Should have started in the final. We all know that. Should have been off after an hour and more experienced players come on. We could have scored more goals if he'd have been on. I just felt extremely proud of him and extremely proud of how Arsenal reacted today and as many people reacted earlier. I I want to focus on that, right? Because he is our leaders. They're going to be out there. They're going to be out there forever and a day and... There's no, I can't fix them, mate. Can't fix them. Just look around the, the suburbs, the cities of England today. You know what happened in London yesterday. It's just, it's just, uh, there's just an undercurrent out there. I'm afraid that we can't fix with a football match. You know, so um, no. So yeah, that's how I feel today. And just, I want to stay really positive. If anything, I hope Arsenal realise what they have. And we can build a team that this kid feels like, I want to be here for the rest of my career. I think that's the most important thing we can do for him. Yeah. And I mean, ultimately for England, I think it is a tournament that hopefully will be remembered fondly, but it's the most painful way for it to end. For Italy, I think the best team in the tournament won the tournament. Congrats to them. But, it, you know, as someone who was, who was pulling for England, and certainly in that moment when Saka steps up, very much pulling for England, it is painful. The thing I will say is that I think... England had an Achilles heel, and the Achilles heel was Southgate's tendency to conservatism. And they came up against a team and a situation where it was just uniquely exploited. Taking the early lead, spending an hour defending so deeply, you know, playing with a back five and two defensive midfielders. And I realized the game started really brightly for England, but ultimately, <clears throat> that that defensive instinct, you know, using both Rice and Phillips, uh, going with the three fullbacks in the back five. I mean, but Rice and Phillips also. I, I think there's a version of this England that probably could have been more dynamic and and reached the mountaintop being more dynamic. But Southgate got them as far as he could. And I, I think, you know, the, the recriminations about that are, are maybe something that'll be looked at after the World Cup where there'll be an expectation that maybe England can take the next step on an even bigger stage. We'll see. But for Saka, Tim, it is it is a situation now where you look at the character of this young man and the confidence he's had and who he is as a player and the outpouring of love he will get from the Arsenal fandom and your hope is that he will just continue to push on from here, to have had a little taste of how big the game can get. I mean, the one thing I'll say is he will never be in a situation as an Arsenal player ever that is as pressurized as what he's already been through. And he will never experience a letdown, most likely, as an Arsenal player that is as pressurized as the letdown he experienced in this. And I, I can... Look, I, I've never been an elite uh, professional athlete. It'll shock you to know. But we've all been there. That moment where you go to bed at night and you literally dream that the outcome was different and you wake up in the morning and for that 
moment before you're fully awake, you think, did it actually go the other way? You know, thinking, did Henri tuck away that chance against Barcelona and we actually won the Champions League? Those those moments in your life where something goes catastrophically the wrong way and you you literally dream that it went the other way and, and Bukayo will be going through that. Tim, is, is it a situation where you are certain that he will bounce back or do you have any fear at all of this being a young man who needs to be built back up? I, I would not remotely compare the professionalism and the attitude of Andrei Arshavin and Bukayo Saka. But the disappointment he experienced with Russia, he really was never the same for Arsenal. Like, he, he just sort of seemed to stop caring about club football. And I'm again, I'm not saying that's going to happen to a 19-year-old Bukayo Saka, but how do you think that the impact of this lingers, if at all? Yeah, I'm I'm really confident in that. I think we have our part to play in that as well um, as fans. I, I do think it, it's a very fine line to cross and, um, you know, everyone's being well-meaning and everything. But um, I, I don't like, I think in the initial moment, you do that kind of, it's it's a bit like, apologies for the slightly morbid analogy here, but it's a bit like when you go to a funeral and you see like the widow or whoever, and you go up and you kind of give your condolences, but then you just kind of fuck off and leave them alone. Um, and, and I feel like we, like there's a balance for us to strike here um, as fans to kind of do that initial, like we're behind you, we're really proud of you and things like but but not to drag it out too long and be too mawkish. Um, a, a, about a good football it. example would be maybe don't do the Brazil thing of holding up Neymar's yeah. shirt when he's yeah. turned his ankle and missed a game and then lose seven to one or whatever the case is. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And, and like we should resist the urge to f- like feel like we're fighting against uh, you know idiots or whatever. Like we should just like stop acknowledging idiots. Like I, I think it's um, largely. I know it's not always that simple, but I, I do think it kind of empowers them a bit. I think um, with with Saka. I mean, first of all, right, the, the news cycle is so aggressive nowadays that these things do get forgotten so quickly. I don't think it's the same as like 1990 when Stuart Pearce or 96 with Southgate. Even like World Cup 98, it was David Batty that missed um, the penalty in the shootout for England. And no one remembers that. Um, In fairness, it's because they went for Beckham because he got sent off. Um, But I do think things move on. I think what I would say um, to Saka, if I was like Mikel Arteta or someone close to him, I'd say, look, you're going to play a lot of games like this in your career. You're going to play a lot of massive games. Um, let's keep our fingers crossed that they're with Arsenal. But if Arsenal aren't playing massive games, he will be gone and he will go somewhere where he will play massive games regularly. And what I would say is, look, you're going to play a lot of these in your career. And essentially, due to the volume of them that you're going to play, something like this was always going to happen. Nobody is immune from that. Messi has missed massive penalties. 2012 Champions League semi-final against Chelsea. And Lord of I held a grudge against him for it ever since. Missed a penalty. Barca don't go through. Chelsea win it. Look at Ronaldo. Euro 2004 final when he was, I believe, the same age as Saka now. You know, didn't they lost that final, <laughs> mm-hmm. and he he got that opportunity back? And and look, okay, like Ronaldo and Messi. Maybe I'm going a bit far with that comparison, but those players they play big games all the time. He will a he will have plenty of other chances to write another story. But if I was Mikel Arteta, I'd just say, look, this is variance, mate. You're going to play loads of these games. It's just happened to you the first time, but you will have like a fourth, fifth, 
six final in your career you you'll play so many of them that you'll probably get the chance to stick the winning penalty away and one of them will score the winning goal or something or even if not only that just like be man of the match in a final so he he's got he's definitely got time on his side and whether it's with us England or in the future another club he'll he'll have uh, plenty of other chances and and this like I I don't think this will stick with him um, in the public's mind. It will stick with him in his mind. Like we've, we've got to be adult about that. Like, of course it will. Southgate said that after the Germany game, you know, he said, look, I I have been carrying that miss with me um, for years. And I don't think you can ever get rid of that totally. It's, it's about how you react to it. And uh, people can, you know, well, you can do one of three things. It can kind of kill you. I don't think it will, Saka. You can use it as fuel and as motivation. And again, that's a fine line because you can kind of go too far. Or you can compartmentalize it. And honestly, I, I just have so much faith that he will do the latter. Yeah, I mean, I I think he will as well. And I, I think that there is a benefit as long as he can shake off the despair, which will take time and, you know, that a bit of a summer off and the fact that, you know, he can live an exceptional life. I think that helps you. I mean, let's, let's also remember that these, these professional athletes have very, very good lives off the pitch. And, you know, it's not 50 years ago when, you know, you might've had to go back to your day job and think about missing the penalty for England. You're, and that probably wasn't 50 years ago, to be honest, probably like 80 years ago, but, um, there's yeah. a story about the goalkeeper from um, whose name escapes me momentarily, the goalkeeper from the 1950 World Cup final in Brazil. And he kind of made the mistake uh, for Uruguay's winner. And he described, he, he ended up living like quite a terrible life afterwards. And he described a situation where he was in the supermarket and a boy looked at him and said, oh, that's the man that let Brazil down. And, you know, like, I don't think that's going to happen to Bukayo Saka, not least because he probably won't be in Sainsbury's no way no. Um, or anything like that <laughs> exactly I mean it's just a different world and and to be fair I mean what I was going to say is like so I've I've worked on TV in the past nothing particularly exciting or or um worthy of praise or, or recognition but I've been on bigger networks and smaller networks when you step up to that bigger network there's a bit of nerves and you do it when you step back down to that smaller network, you just feel so comfortable in your skin because you're like, yeah, whatever. You know, I've, I've, I've been to the mountaintop. This is nothing. I do wonder if there's a sense of like, with what Saka's been through now, getting on the pitch at the Emirates to play Brentford in the Premier League will just feel so, so comfortable. And and you could say, well, that's not good. He should, you know, that should still feel huge to him. But in a way, to be 19 and to be able to play against Chelsea and City and the Premier League and have it not feel monumental, I think is a massive benefit. Because you can just be comfortable in your skin, go play your football. Because you already know you played for England in a Euro final and stepped up and had the confidence to try to take the winning penalty, make or miss. Uh, Paul, there's two things I want to touch on with you. First, just quickly, because I I think uh, Clive was probably too, um, let's just say, diplomatic in his response. How do you feel about Saka being in that situation to take that penalty? Fucking nuts. (laughs) Absolutely nuts. I couldn't believe it. Like, when the camera cut to and the next penalty taker for England is and it's Saka I'm like what <laughs> I just couldn't fucking it was a, it was surreal it was not real that the next guy was Saka how could it be can for I read you a really reasons. interesting Twitter post and again I know that trusting things from Twitter is dangerous but I'm gonna just take the leap of faith that this person didn't invent this you ready for this 
Here's the number of penalties taken by the players that England had available. Grealish has taken oh, one yeah. as, a, as a pro. Yeah. Grealish, one. Saka, zero. Maguire, zero. Sancho, three. Rashford, 14. Kane, over 40. Sterling, five, with three missed. Stone, zero. Shaw, zero. Phillips, zero. Outside of Kane and Rashford, the most penalties taken by the available players were Sterling, who missed three-fifths of them, and Sancho, who'd taken three. I mean, it is it is a difficult situation and then you look at the Italians, right? Yeah, yeah. And they are, they're basically professional penalty takers. No wonder they were playing for penalties in extra time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. It, but but it still, incredible. not Sterling there. I mean, not 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 uh, Saka. Do you, do you? So I don't totally know who picks takers and when or what. But like the players sort of have to volunteer. It's tremendous credit to Saka to volunteer to take the fifth. But like, isn't isn't there a little burden on like a Grealish or a Sterling to be like? Yeah. we trust you, man, but, uh, you know, l- let me take this one. I've been here before. You you know, you'll get the next one. You know, like, is there a little pressure on them to protect him there? There is, but I also think it's down to the manager. Uh, I mean, uh, he's defined by two things. He's the guy who missed a penalty when he was a kid and then defined a whole career through it, including management, management to England, Um you know, he's run the best camp tournament campaign. Everything was planned. Everything was meticulous. And then a couple of weird things, which is the second half of this game and the penalties. It's bizarre. Yeah. And um, like to suddenly be the guy with a plan who doesn't have a plan. Uh, the penalties is weird. There's a really fascinating video. I don't know if you've seen it of Ronaldo. Mm-mm. Um, in uh, Portugal penalty shootout and Moutinho and maybe Fonte, I think it is, don't want to take a penalty. Uh, they're shirking. And Ronaldo comes over to them and says, come on, guys, you're taking a penalty. Uh, you hit it good. You leave it up to God. That's all. Basically, that's all you can ask. Now get out there, you, you pansies. <laughs> well, you get out there and take a penalty and they step up and they step forward. And I think that's right. I think you got to say the words to the Grealishes of this world. Maybe Sterling isn't the right guy to take a penalty because he's missed three of five. I mean, maybe, maybe he's not your fifth, but Grealish for fuck's sake, you're about to be paid 90 million to move to Manchester city. Um, like, I don't know the details. Maybe he wanted to take one, and this was somebody else's brilliant idea. Maybe Saka's done much better in practice than Grealish on penalties, but that still wouldn't swing it for me. Out of 10, but, how bad a penalty is it? Um, look, if the goalkeeper goes the right side, he saves that every time because mm-hmm. it's the right height, and he hits it hard but not super hard. Well, it's, look, close, it's close to him is the problem, yeah. Yeah, and the thing is, if you're Saka and you're 19, you can't feel anything from the neck down. Like, <laughs> you can't feel your legs. You, Like, it, it, talking about going on autopilot and that's the way it should be, like, it's beyond that. He probably didn't even know when his legs started the run-up when his foot kicked the ball. I mean, you you talk about not being an elite athlete. I Maybe Clive, maybe Tim have been in this situation. I actually once took the final penalty in a massive game. It was for the Cub Scouts. 
I was that is uh, huge. 12. No, no, hang on. Hang on. Bear with this. I was the uh, patrol leader and uh, we won our way through this to the final uh, from a selection of 12 teams. And I took it was a draw and I had to step up to take it. It was a one penalty shoot off and they scored. And uh, I decided as the, the the basically captain and patrol leader, I should take the penalty and I missed. And like I was not one for tears, but I cried for half an hour. And I had people in my team walk up to me afterwards and say, you should have let me take the penalty. I was a better. <laughs> I'm like, the, like, these are Dublin lads, Irish lads, guys I was in school with. I'm like, it's interesting, the emotions that come out, like even at that age. I was like disgusted with some of these people, but gutted. And I can tell you, it's, it's gutting. And that lived with me since then. But mm. the, the thing about Saka is he's going to be OK. This was a. It's not for every player, but this is a, pa- a, a rite of passage for him. Uh, he became a man to a greater degree on that day. Yeah. Uh, he, will, he will immediately become stronger. It'll take him a few days, but he will dig deep and become a better player and a stronger player. And when you look across those faces, I know he could, uh, I'm confident he could feel nothing from the neck down. But you also know a guy who has such emotional balance in himself. This will make him work harder, be better. The, those English lads need to be taking penalties for their team mm. uh, I, in the league. Because yeah. if, if, if England think they can win the World Cup without going to penalties at least once, possibly twice, uh, when you look at the depth of penalty taking on the Italy side, they're never going to win this with guys like there's a reason uh, Harry What's-His-Face uh, came came to take that second penalty kick. Um, like nobody else had any experience and he had the mentality for it. But that's not tr- how this should be working. Yeah. Um, yeah. Rashford, yeah. Kane, yeah. Outside of that... England has no penalty takers in their team. I don't. I don't love subbing players on cold to take penalties. I, I said this on the Euro Daily. I'm sure there's data that shows whether that works or not. I, I just have always thought it's a little weird. I think you have to run off some of the anxiety and sweat off a little of that that yeah. n- those nerves. But I, I don't love it. I think. I mean, I hate to say this for Rashford and Sancho, but I'm so glad they missed two. So it's not Saka being the only one. I think it it spreads out that burden a little bit, um, which is a good thing. Uh, you feel for Pickford a bit, who really heroically saves the, the Jorginho penalty. I mean, look. He did a Kill- hell of a final. Yeah. Look, Killian Mbappe missed his penalty for France to go out. So it can happen to the best of them. And, you know, character isn't forged in the good times. These are the crucibles that forge strong character. And so if Bukayo is going to be an elite player, this is the moment that forges that kind of character, not the good times. You know, Lionel Messi, who, you know, is the greatest player in history, just won his first international honors this week. Um, thanks to Emmy Martinez, by the way. So, you know, I, I think that is worth pointing out. Clive, one of the things that I will take away from this is just a transformation that I have not seen. Look, I'm not an England fan, so I, you know, my England interests tend to rise and fall with the England with the uh, Arsenal contingent. But the two things that I think this tournament give you are one, a vision of a likable England, an England you can really root for, even if you're not English. You know, 
the, the John Terry's of the world aren't there. The Wayne Rooney's of the world aren't there. And I realize some of these England players will grow older playing for teams we hate and maybe become that. Harry Kane is really the only guy I can't stand, and, and he's probably on his way out. But you look at the young players and the future of England, and whether it's Saka and maybe even Smith-Rowe, and it's Sancho, and it's Foden, and it's Mount, and still Sterling to some extent, um, you know, and Rashford, who's a wonderful guy, and you look at some of the players in waiting and, and some of the guys that are going to be carrying England forward, I think, you know, it's always dangerous to have optimistic hopes for the future of an international team because things change so quickly because the tournaments are so spread out. But the World Cup's not that far away. And is it the case in your mind that not only is this a likable, exciting young core of English players, but the experience they will have gotten here, pretty quickly they get to go again in the World Cup and it's going to be an excellent preparation for for an even bigger stage. Yeah, this is... This is a huge, huge moment, really, for 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 me as an England watching fan. I think what this team is doing, it's just it's just so relatable. They're just so relatable as individuals, and and how they how they act and what they do off the pitch. You know, people like Jordan Henderson, and they just do amazing things. You know, and obviously Rashford and Sterling get get a lot of publicity because of that. So they make a mistake, and people are very quick to remind them of the color of their skin, as we all know. Um, but it's it's a team that I, I really enjoy everything about them. And I, I just love the way he's built the environment there. And there's more young talent coming there. It's like, obviously, Trent Trent wasn't there this time. Curtis Jones at Liverpool. You know, obviously, Greenwood at Manchester United. You, we're talking about Ben White. Let's talk about Ben White. He's only around the corner. We are talking about a lot of talent at a good age. And this experience will hold them in good stead. It will only develop them more quickly. A lot of the work that Southgate's put in place with the EPP, etc., there's a lot of talent about to appear. You know, oh, thanks you, Paul. We mentioned Bellingham. You know, once he gets in, we're all going to be watching him for 10 years. He's never coming out. He's never coming out once he gets in. And so there's so much ability there, ready to come through. And now it seems to be a place that players want to be, actually want to be in camp. You know, I've grown up and people shied out of camps. They want to go to camps. They want to play for England. Only bad things can happen, right? So, I think you know what he's done here is really, really key. And Qatar's only around the corner. I think from the football side of things, I think there's a there's a development still to to happen. As fans, people have seen all these attacking players, and they're saying to themselves, "I think we can." We've got these attacking players and Southgate's too pragmatic and all the rest of it. I think we've got a development angle. We've got to think about how we connect to these attacking players. We have this thing in England where we think that the holding midfielders have to be hardworking midfielders. Your holding midfielder should be your best footballer. And because we can't play through the thirds without that player, without that number six player. And I think that's coming around to Marco Verratti, huh? Oh, Brady's an eight, right? But yeah. you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's that six. It's that Jorginho, basically. We haven't yeah. got we haven't yeah. got Jorginho. That's what we haven't got. You know, we haven't got a Busquets. We haven't got that guy. They can play through at any particular time. They can take the ball in the phone box. We look at that player. Or I'm not criticising him. We prefer a Declan Rice player. We prefer somebody that's very fit, aggressive, that can cover, shield, delay. But when when we're under pressure, we can't play through. If we can't play through, what happens is 
you, you end up taking the identity of the players that hold your core, your brain, of the team, that central zone. And if those players are defensive, you end up defending because you can't play through. The threat of playing through doesn't get out of the pitch. And consistently, when England got beat by Croatia, the similar scenario in the semi-final of the World Cup, we didn't have the ability to play out. We got we lost possession. We got squeezed. We got pushed back. We lost the game. Same with this one. We didn't have the ability to spring. So the tactics was very much pickwood to out to wide areas or to go forward to Kane. Once Kane started losing the ball, he decides I'm going to come back. Well, we, everyone's back then, you know. So it's a it's a development that we have to do. We have to think about our centre midfields in a different light. Players like Foden, we want to play high. For England, do we develop them lower into eight so we can always play into them? You know, we have to think about this, you know. If we develop that central zone, then we can reach the super talent we have at top end of the pitch. You know, so I think so much to learn from this experience, from a, from a cultural experience, from a football experience, from a, a national pride experience. I just think it's been a wonderful, wonderful time that I refuse to let the negativity around the racism create an aftertaste that I remember this tournament by, I want to remember it by what I've seen for the last four weeks, particularly post the pandemic. The unity in different communities has been huge, huge, and really good for some people's mental well-being. The fact that the idiots all over the papers today, I'm not having that. I'm not having that. And I hope England can develop on from this and remember how we felt when it was going really, really well we use this as a layer for the next phase in, in Qatar 2022. It is really interesting. I mean, you think about England's central midfielders, and like Jack Wilshire still stands out to me as like one of the most technically gifted England central midfielders of the last two decades, which is insane. It's just a position that's been a real problem. And, and you know, it was a problem against Italy, and it continues to be an issue. And I think Bellingham's going to be a revelation for England. Smith Rowe may prove to be as well. Um, you know, I think Jordan Henderson maybe not being fully fit was a problem. We won't go into too much of a postmortem in the actual game itself, but I, I have to agree. I think playing Declan Rice and Calvin Phillips together all tournament, I mean, it's easy to say, well, it worked, and they were both good. They're both good at what they're meant to do, but the stuff they can't do, I think, hurt England, especially in the first half hour um, against Italy. But, you know, as we sort of turn the page and start to turn the corner on this, Tim, I think there, there's two sort of lingering points here. One is just, I mean, Clive is sort of referenced not having it with the nasty element, the nasty reaction. And I I don't know if this makes me naive or a optimistic, hopeful person. Probably a combination of the two. And a lot of people are saying, wait, you're optimistic and hopeful? I must have missed that. I see the outpouring of love and the outpouring of support and the, the way the team was supported and the way the nation came together for, as an outsider, you know, looking in. And I take that away from this. I also acknowledge that in the streets, at the ground, and on social media, there's some nasty, terrible behavior. And of course, it's going to get the headlines. I still think that it is overwhelmingly the other reaction that is the story. But, you know, once the nasty stuff rises to a level where you can't really ignore it and probably shouldn't ignore it, then you have the question of what the right way to deal with it is. So I'm curious how you compartmentalize or shine a light on for yourself the, the conflicting feelings of a nation that felt like it came together at times of outpouring of love and support. I mean, the, the back pages that I saw from, from the tabloids, usually full of, you know, filth and nastiness and vitriol and, and animus, like we're all 
very supportive and and generous, which is unusual from them. But there's the other side. So how do you how do you reconcile the two? And and what's your attitude towards the sort of sadly inevitable uh, uh, ugly side to the reaction to this? Yeah, it's it's really complicated, and and it's really I do think it is really complex. Like, look, I'm I'm not as involved in other kind of footballing cultures, and I, I don't really know how like Italians or French people or Swiss people or whoever like. Uh, whether they have these elements but there there is something really complicated with England and a lot of the scenes from Sunday you know a lot of people that I know and I've thought this myself in the past you know once you get over the idea that oh actually these players are quite a nice bunch but quite a lot of people just feel excluded from supporting the national team because of that element and um, even on Wednesday you know when I was at the game and I, I kind of said that Wembley was a good place for it and everything um, I, you know, I still said within that, we, like, we cannot ignore this. I, I guess I'd call it a sizable minority. This, like, um, this stag do feeling that there, there is something that is in our culture in England, and it comes out in these games, sometimes in these big games as well. Uh, amongst all the nostalgia from Euro '96, like I remember after that Germany game, like it 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 doesn't last as long in the memories and the like the documentaries and the podcasts about Euro '96. But like Trafalgar Square got smashed up that night, um, and and I saw um, Jack Pitbrook, who covers England games for the Athletic. He he kind of described this as like England away. It just happened in England this time. Um, that kind of stag do mentality and that kind of, I guess that like angry disenfranchisement, but this, this, this kind of feeling that a lot of young English men, um, and sometimes not all young men actually, but almost exclusively men. Um, well, no, actually I'd say <laughs> exclusively men just have this kind of, this real like territorial, um, you know this this feeling that this this is mine and therefore I can I can rush the turnstiles I I can smash my city up I can throw bottles everywhere and stuff and and you know I don't, I don't I guess it comes from a lot of different places but but reconciling that as an England fan it's really it's really difficult because you can't hand wave it it's there like we've all seen it we all know it exists. And like, I feel like the only thing to do, and I, like I said, I've had my waverings with England down the years, and that's one of them is that kind of, God, and that's one of the reasons I, I like never really had that much interest in going to England games, particularly abroad, because I just kind of thought to myself, God, like, I, I just, yeah, they, they look like some assholes <laughs> mm -hmm. there. And like I, I just don't really want to be a part of that. And, and I, it's really complicated how you get rid of that and, like the only thing I think really that's in our immediate power to do is to try and drown it out. But it's difficult, you know, because there were there were six. Well, there were more than 60,000 in the stadium on Sunday because lots of people forced their way in. But and, and you know, that's like that's like this huge occasion. It's a final like these aren't all going to be like filled out with absolutely hardcore England fans who go to Estonia and places like that. But you still just couldn't quite drown out what was happening in city centers and stuff like that and outside the stadium like there is something inherent in our culture that, that we really need to address about this and i see it abroad a lot like if just if you go on holiday um you know if you go somewhere where there's lots of british tourists like uh or lots of english tourists as well like 
you get this um you get this kind of stag do kind of arms spread out uh, you know like we're, an invasion yeah, yeah yeah like we're taking this we're taking this pub we're taking this town square you know you look at people singing the english national anthem and like it's arms spread out like it's being bellowed at you and that, that, that there's you know i guess there's many forms of patriotism but there's an aggressive form as well and and you see that aggressive form and i really don't know how you get rid of it and without wishing to get too political it's, it's difficult to be hopeful about that when in the uk this is just my opinion and sorry i don't want to alienate listeners or anything like that but in my opinion this is like a troubling government um a device like a divisive by design government and it is enormously popular it walked an election i'm convinced it will walk the next election like this is what people want and so it's really difficult first of all to identify the root of some of this but even if you anthropologize about it and you think you know the root getting rid of it um or diluting it or turning the sound down on it is is just next to impossible and it and it feels kind of hopeless and i i've tried not to let that i um kind of define me kind of you know supporting england in a fairly fair weather way but it is difficult. Like there's, there's no two ways about it. And I completely understand people who just say, do you know what? I, I just don't want any part of this. Mm. It, can it I, is. Can I yeah, please come back. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. I'd love it. I think when Tim's had the word diluting, I know, I know what you means by that. Yeah. And what people are trying to do you know, as a form of dilution is to drive an inclusive rhetoric, so inclusivity and diversity to make sure that everyone gets equal opportunities. And that's the very thing that the England team stood for. And that's the very thing that the Prime Minister of our country opened the door and said, it's okay to boo those players who are standing up for diversity, inclusivity and equal opportunities when they take the knee as a symbol of that. And so if you have that from the very, very top, what you do is you empower people that have grown up, that have been educated in a way in a country called Great Britain, where it's okay to behave like this. It's absolutely okay. It's your right by birth to behave like this. More and more people are shunning this. I will say that. More and more people are recognizing this can't continue. Tim's right about the government getting in. They get in, They got in on a, <clears throat> a Brexit rhetoric, which is all about division, all about dividing us from, another, from the other parts of Europe. So we have a divisive rhetoric, divisive politics, and we, this is the byproduct of that. And um, it's going to continue. But what all you can do, is, uh, to, I use that dilution word, all you can do is say, you know what, I'm going to hold my values. I'm going to make sure that I open my mind up to what's happening in the world. I'm going to make sure I'm aware of different parts of education, not just um, how I'm educated at school, but maybe for me, I, you know, looking at black history, for example, looking at different history, different backgrounds looking at Muslim history, looking at things, understanding people in a different way. I can I can really properly interact with them, not just on a on a shallow level. And I think that's that's how I'm going to live by the values. That's the values I'm going to live. That's the values I'm going to teach my children. If other people do that, then this will seep down and it will dilute. It will dilute. And the reaction of three young men missing a penalty no, it's just a penalty miss. No, no one will, no one will react in this way. And um, so it's a, it's a challenge. It's a challenge, and it will not be one that's going to be done in two minutes flat. But 
I see more and more and more people aware of this challenge. And that is a good thing. That is a good thing. Yeah. I mean, it is a reckoning. And reckonings don't happen overnight. They take they take time. I think it is funny listening to Tim talk about sort of like the ugly side of uh, British tourists. And there's a very stereotypical idea of like the ugly American tourist. But the ugly American tourist is just someone who like dresses bad and orders their steak well done at the restaurant. <laughs> Right, like we just we don't really mingle with other cultures very well, but it's it's a far cry from throwing chairs. <laughs> but you know, I mean, everybody's got their their darker side. I, I think the thing that I will say about this, and I want to bring Paul into it too, obviously, is that when when you look at unifying moments, I think the reason that these kind of football tournaments are so interesting is they unify you as a country. You are all rallying around the flag, and and it should be unifying. But we are also going through a moment in all of our countries, respectively, I think, where we start to really think about what it means to be part of that country. Who is invited into that group? Who gets to stand and wave that flag? Who is a part of that history? Have they always been a part of that history? Have we always treated that group the right way? Has that group always been participatory? Do they even want to be a part of that history in the way they've been treated? And these these things are challenging because a flag represents a nation and a nation represents a people and those people aren't always treated equally and always included in all aspects of what that country has been over its history. And that is a thing that we are reckoning with. But where my optimism comes in is that I think we are reckoning with it because we want to have that more fulfilling, sophisticated understanding of, of our country where we can recognize the things that aren't perfect about it and love it nonetheless and not love one part of it, but love its warts and understand its flaws and fix them and make them better and make it a place where everybody who wants to wave that flag is included and invited and a part of it and granted the rights that flag is meant to, to provide. Because it is not just about singing the songs and going to the game and waving the flag. It is about enjoying the rights and privileges and immunities and liberties that are granted by that nation and all people benefiting from that. And so I think it is a good thing that we reckon with these things because ultimately it brings us closer to that goal. Now, maybe that is overly naive and optimistic and hopeful, but if you can't get behind that, then what's the point? So, you know, you see some of the racist messages directed at these players. And I think that there are two aspects to that. I think there are people who are either kids or drunks, and miserable human beings, and it's not even that they particularly care about race, they just want to hurt those players as much as they can. And so they say the thing they think that will do that. And then, of course, there are the invidious, nasty racists who hold those kinds of hateful, racially-oriented opinions in their heart, and those people are, in my view, having their death rattle moment right now. And I say that because I think that ultimately society is moving beyond a point where that will be tolerated or included and where the next generation of people coming through will simply not hold those ideas. And I could prove to be desperately wrong about that, but I don't think so. I think when we experience these death rattle moments, usually what follows is progress. Uh, you know, and I say that as someone who didn't live through, but, you know, understands what happened in the 1960s in America. And you can say, well, we didn't fix everything then. We didn't fix everything, but we saw progress come from it. And now more progress is needed, certainly here and abroad, but without getting too deep into that, because it is an area, first of all, I would, I would wade carefully because I'm, I'm not obviously a scholar on it, and I would probably say a lot of things wrong, um, but I care about it, and I care about people, and I care about people being treated well and being happy and being included uh, and respected. And Paul, I think that the irony is that you tend to be the pessimist of the group when it comes to humans, but the optimist of the group when it comes to football, which is quite weird because I'm the opposite. You have, uh, you have sometimes, I think, had to grab me by the shoulders and say, sorry, mate, it's not quite as good as you think it is. 
Um, in this instance, do you find yourself feeling that way, that this is a, a reminder that there is a a demon in all of us and a demon on our society that is not going away and that we have to reckon with and keep bottled up? Or do you do you have maybe a different perspective? Yeah, but but not to keep bottled up. I think you've got to see in yourself, in society, the good and the bad. Like there is kind of an evil and there is kind of a good and it's a collective thing, but but bottled up just doesn't work. You got to get shit out and it's got to be talked about and it's got to be understood. And the problem is you need both sides or all sides talking. The idea that that we won't talk to these people whose ideas are we think are reprehensible. Well, you got to talk to the ones who are less reprehensible because otherwise you just have a polarized society. The idea we have these conversations around football is football just football. You know, why do we get so excited? Blah, blah, blah. As as a friend of mine reminded me, football is a metaphor for a life. And we can see in this, it's not just England. Like when France were won the World Cup, it was seen for them socially as an opportunity for them to heal, to come close. Like every country, Brazil, Tim, Tim, I'm sure, can talk at length about the importance of football. Um, now, it doesn't always deliver the the social healing or the political progress, but there's no denying the importance of role uh, of the role of football in Brazil, in France, in England. Um, the, maybe this sounds like a negative, but I think for perspective, like uh, especially those who maybe don't really know England, haven't lived in England, um, like the aggressiveness is not new. This is not just a a a Trump Brexit phenomenon that's recently come about. I lived in the, the UK in the late 80s, early 90s. And one thing that struck me immensely was the level of aggression in young people in England. Just like you go to a bar, a pub in England, and you have a couple of drinks. Now, I come from a country in which we were not out drank by the opposition. But you bump it. <laughs> You bump into somebody on the way to the toilet in England and holy fuck, like nothing. You won't get into a fight. You'll just feel you just narrowly mixed one. It's very, very aggressive. Now, this is the late 80s, early 90s. And it's not just guys like the guys are the most aggressive for obvious reason. We have more aggression in us. But the girls, the women are much more aggressive than what I had experienced in other countries, primarily Ireland. But I've I've spent time in a number of countries in the U.S. I mean, the U.S. is much less aggressive in a bar. It's just the guy probably has a gun. So if things get bad, he goes from kind of friendly, charming to pulls it out and blows your head off. Um, but in the in England, the point is. There's just much more aggression. It's it's tangibly different on a, on a uh, you know, just now th that said, I had a wonderful time in England. I love the country. The people were great. I kind of can't relate to what what's going on at the moment politically. But I can tell you when you go to a pub pub in the evening, the level of a, of kind of simmering aggression there, people out kind of ready to be triggered is just it's another level I'll, I'll tell you something because <laughs> so i worked in england for a bit and yeah. it, not, never lived there but would travel there and 
I didn't know London at the time and I was young and I was like, oh, I'll just go someplace fun. So I went to Leicester Square and, uh, you know, in retrospect, not a good choice, but, you know, I'm walking through Leicester Square as sort of an early 20s naive young man abroad uh, looking for a place to get a drink. And I'm like, oh, that looks like a fun bar. And as I'm approaching it and it sort of had scaffolding around it, a fight between two gentlemen spills out of the front door fist flying groups of people punching each other and someone grabs a piece of metal off the scaffolding and swings and knocks a guy in the head with it and knocks him clean out and i was like i need to go anywhere but here (laughs) so i just think look isn't it weird because like america and guns and violence and stuff but it's different it's uh, mm. i'm not saying it's i'm believe me i'm not saying it's better or safer or anything like that but like there's kind of a simmering hand-to-hand uh, violence thing that it's seemed... always on the surface basically yeah and I, yeah. D- I don't know you know the problem guys is it can be bound up in socioeconomics it can be bound up in alcohol culture it can be bound up in the fact that there aren't guns and so maybe people feel a little more free to settle things with their fists which i think we'd all say is preferable to settling things with a firearm but uh, the one thing i take away from from this is the whole western world has has a challenging relationship with alcohol and um you know, it is sort of funny to me that we decided as a society that marijuana was too dangerous to to have yeah. be legal, but alcohol should flow from taps like water. Uh, maybe something we should have reconsidered. But just to put a pin in this and start to turn the, the conversation towards Arsenal, um, I will say, as horrifying as some of the scenes were, if you are able to set aside some of that and have a laugh, I, I mean, I I struggle to because again, not a lot of it is funny, but the sight of a man sticking a flare in his rectum to somehow have that be celebratory of, of a football match is something. There was a man fully nude, wrapped in the flag, standing atop, I, I think, a car singing. Um, I All I can say is that man uh, clearly, clearly has listened to the podcast and used promo code Arsenal Vision to get his lawnmower 4.0. So at this point, I think it is only fair that I tell you that the latest performance package 4.0 is out from Manscaped. And whether you are planning to use a flare in places they don't belong or stand nude atop a car to celebrate a football match or simply just enjoy the privacy of your own home, the intimacy of a hotel room in Vegas with us or whatever the case may be, uh, if your goal is to be perfectly groomed, you're going to want Manscaped. I mean, that's just it, right? They've got the new fourth generation performance package and it includes Shears 2.0 nail grooming kit. I have to admit, uh, I'm a guy who used to bite my nails and had rough cuticle situation, things like that. And I've come to realize, uh, thanks to my, my beautiful wife, that that is, uh, how shall I say, gross, and she doesn't like it. The Shears 2.0 is a luxury four-piece nail kit. features tempered stainless steel tools and includes a slash tip tweezer, round point scissors, fingernail clippers, and a medium grit nail file. And it comes in a really nice magnetized uh, closed uh package that you can take with you or throw in a in a shaving kit that actually comes with the performance package. Of course, the star of the show, the Lawnmower 4.0 with the Skin Safe technology. You want ceramic plates? Well, guess what? You're getting ceramic blades, a 7,000 RPM motor, an on-off travel lock, so when it's in the bag, it doesn't just start lawn mowing your other bag items, and it's wet and dry. Use it wherever. And it's it, now it has just a contact um, induction charger, so you just sit it in the charging cr- cradle instead of having to plug it in. Love it, and I hope you'll get it. You can go there, manscaped.com, 20% off and free shipping when you use promo code ArsenalVision. 20% off and free shipping globally when you use promo code ArsenalVision. That's manscaped.com, promo code ArsenalVision. Clive, enough of that? Yeah, ingenious link, ingenious. I mean, when you saw that man standing atop that car with no clothes on, 
surely you had to know. That was your best pivot. Yeah. That, that was, I didn't think you could get from there to there, Elliot. That was masterful. I didn't think you could get a flare. In, well, you know what? Let's not. Let's not do it. So, <laughs> so let's do this. Let's move on from a conversation that took us in a lot of interesting directions. And for those of you who tuned out ages ago, I certainly understand if that wasn't your cup of tea from us. But I feel that topics that have to be discussed, have to be discussed. Um, you know, we don't we don't write the news. We just report it. So, uh, interestingly, though, Clive, do you know what tomorrow is? Um, Tuesday. <laughs> and you know what that means? Nope. Preseason. There, there are two correct answers here. One, one is Taco Tuesday, obviously. But the other is oh, yeah. H- H- Hibs versus Arsenal. Are you, Clive, are you ready? Are you ready to shed this nonsense international football and watch Arsenal and be outraged by Mikel Arteta's back three dire defensive performance against Hibs in the first preseason game uh, on our long march to, uh, obviously, a title winning season? Yeah, I can't wait. I thought he actually wins the actually, but I, thought, I can't wait. <laughs> Pla- plastic, is that the expression we use for someone like you? Pla- yeah, pla- no, I'm, I'm just recovering from a heavy weekend. So ah, fair I, enough. I've got my days wrong. <laughs> Um, so here, here's a question for you. We we talked a lot about preseason mattering a lot this season. Get the group together, really get them geared up, really prepare for a big season where all we have to focus on in the league. And Bukayo Saka won't be joining for a long time. And we've done basically no transfer business. Nuno Ta- Ta- Tavares aside, Tavares, and I mean he's not he's not going to play a lot for us. We wouldn't think so. Do you have a concern that Arsenal have maybe not done as much as you would have liked to have seen to be starting the preseason with a group that resembles what it might become the start of the season. No, it's too early. There's another phase. They've got to get there's another phase for they go to the US tour. I think that's the key phase. Mm-hmm. This is the first one where they work. It's a lot of hard work. I heard today they've got a squad of about thirty that's gone. So they'll be playing probably two teams in these games. You know, some forty-five minutes for some, another team come on. It's all about minutes and legs at the moment and getting that resilience up. You can do a lot of work on your own. You can do a lot of gym work, a lot of testing. But in the end, you need uh, the competitive edge of a group to see where you are. You're doing your runs and sprints and shuttles and stamina work, etc. So I'm not worried about that. They know what they're doing when it comes to preseason fitness. I think from a squad perspective, we know there's a lot of work to do. And and there is a lot of noise, you know, not just your normal noise. If he's a little bit more solid, there's some Hector noise today. There's some bit of Callum Chambers noise today to Crystal Palace. There's been Adrian Ketter last week. Maitland Niles gone a bit quiet. There's, there's a bit of noise around the, the players that could go out the door. And there's obviously a couple that were looking to come in. So I'm not worried. I'm not going to set timetables in my mind so I can get outraged when they get missed. Because, you know, we didn't get party till last minute last season. And I'm not sure how wise that was, given the fact that he's lack of preseason, etc. So I just want to see us, you know, we got Shaka to come back from his holiday and then go potentially to Roma. I think once the first domino falls, I think we'll start to see some movement. The, the thing for me is really the mood of the Arsenal fans are, OK, I can see what you're doing. We can see the rebuild. We can see what you're trying to do. What we don't have yet is any of those first 11 players to come in. And I think we're expecting two or three of those to come in. And that's where the money is going to be spent. And that's what you need to make room for. You can't really make those purchases until, you know, people have gone. Otherwise, if you buy too early, then you're not going to get the value on the players that you sell. So I think that's really important. So we have to be patient, mate. Have to be patient. Save your outrage a little bit longer, Elliot. Just a little bit longer. 
and we're just enjoying these games and see if we can see any relationships, etc. and see if anyone's matured in the, the short period they've had off. I'm easy like Sunday morning, Clive. I'm not upset about anything. I'm relaxed. I mean, obviously, William Saliba should be playing, and I don't... And so, sorry, no, it, nope. I'm not going to do it. I don't, fine, I'm fine. Tim, I got it under control. Um, I, I don't know how to feel about Arsenal right now because... I, I I want to rediscover what I rediscover every summer, which is hope and optimism and belief that we are going to go on to a title-winning season and shock the world. I think the team that just finished eighth looks a lot like the team that we have right now. And I'm still not totally clear on what will happen and what won't happen. It feels like Lakanga is happening, like Ben White is happening, like Shaka is going. We don't really have a replacement for that. Is it going to be Madison and Awar or Awar coming in at 10? Is, is Neves really going to be the solution at midfield? There's a lot of ifs and links and buts and question marks, but not a lot of answers. And then there's the point that, hey, we were one of the best teams in the league post-boxing day, you know, if that's a narrative you tie into. So maybe we don't need an overhaul. I, I'm i torn in a lot of different directions about where we should be right now, but I'm curious, do you think that we may have overestimated, all of us collectively, what even was possible this summer in terms of the number of outgoings we need slash expected and the number of incomings that are probably required to dramatically change the look of the team. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I said that a few months ago. You know, I, I think people are going to be unpleasantly surprised by what the market's going to be like this summer. And you know, have you have you already found yourself revising down values you had in your head? I have um, for certain <laughs> players. So, like when the the rumours, anyway, or the reports are that there's a 12 million bid for Inketia, like three months ago, I said no. Solanke, you know, Dominic Solanke went for twice that, and uh, so did Ryan Brewster. But now, you know, you kind of think mm, twelve million doesn't sound that bad, actually. If we put it in like a sell-on clause, and you know, th- there's going to be loads of buy now, pay later action um, this summer, and 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 who knows, maybe even the club um, will go through that journey um, a little bit as well. Like maybe, you know, it looks like Roma have kind of slapped some money on the table and said final offer. For Xhaka because they seem quite confident that no one else is in that race and you know maybe in two to three weeks 12 million looks better than it did two to three weeks ago so I, I always felt this summer would be really really tricky and and so I, I do think that as much as like personally I hate the fact that they've extended the window again so it doesn't finish um, until like the end of August because I hate the fact that those first three games there's that uncertainty and I hate the fact that no one talks about the games. They just talk mm. about them exclusively through the prism of transfers. Um, and so, but I personally, I was never really under any illusion that, that things would be like that things will move. Things will happen. Like it, it looks to me like there are, there are several irons in the fire and we've just got to wait for one or two, um, you know, one or two to kind of uh, I'm mixing metaphors here to percolate, um, a little bit and ultimately I do think that it's not that, like Tavares is hopefully very far from the most exciting addition I thought looking at our to-do list that backup left back I thought that was going to be the hardest one to do and I I entirely talked myself into the idea of don't bother let's just use Saka as the backup left back because he's really good at it um, and we've got depth in the wide forward position. So, you know, don't worry about it. But it, we, we've kind of solved that issue um, quite easily. So, I, I mean, I am I am expecting some things to drop, particularly now the Euros is over. 
people are back in training etc cetera, etc cetera. and there, there are also there are a couple of things like there are still covid restrictions in place so something like the lakonga signing for example probably done but um he's in quarantine somewhere which is what happened with Tavares. so that might slow things down a little bit in terms of announcements Mm. Um, and so I think we have to be maybe prepared for a little bit of that time lag um, as well. But uh, yes, I, I, I think ultimately we were never going to be able to do all the things that we needed to do this summer. I, I do think, you know, the number 10 and the central midfielder, that those have to get done um, as far as I'm concerned, along with the new contract for Smith Rowe. And after that, um, I, you know, I, I tend to think it would take a few windows, but I, I think those, those are like must haves and the rest I can kind of, I can live with. I'd probably be willing reluctantly, but willing to waive the 10 if I had to, but the central midfielder is, is an absolute necessity. Now it's yeah. not just a necessity. You have to do it right, which is yeah. another another issue altogether because I think there's a question of whether Neves is the right solution. I know Paul, you're a little more bullish on that. Is there is there for you, Paul, an amount of business that has to be done? Um, well, that's a dumb question because obviously there is. But I guess the better question is, wh- what is it in your view? I think a lot of people, myself included, who were really shocked that we were pushing the boat this far out for Ben White, and it, it does seem we will do that, is, is my belief, have started to soften on it, myself included, based on the presumption that I think we're just going to go ahead and get the other business done that I regard as actually more important. If we did the Ben White deal and it became clear that that somehow prohibited us from, let's say, getting the central midfielder, would you then regard that as having been the wrong priority or is that sort of too reductive a way of thinking about it? Uh, Yeah, I can't, like, assuming Chaka goes, I can't conceive of us not adding somebody like a Neves. I mean, pick pick your favorite Neves or maybe you're a Basuma guy. I don't feel that in the war the water here in terms of the directions we're looking. Um, and I think Lakanga can maybe give us some of the Basuma when we need it. Um, but we absolutely need a distributor from deep, which the Nevis blue blueprint would match to. Um, and I'm basically just uh, maybe slightly less um uh, insistent but pretty close to insistent if we didn't get a number 10 and things didn't work out this year then that's entirely and utterly on edu and arteta I'll, I'll i will allow the learning curve and the difficulties of last summer um some naivety some post fa cup optimism for their belief that they could do it without an attacking midfielder and a war fell through it on them kind of at the last hurdle but for it to happen twice uh, i'm amazed at how sanguine you are elliot at the idea of not getting a 10. i know smith rowe has been great but he's also a kid Mm. um and like we need goals and he's never done it and i can see reasons why he will do it in the future but we needed in the first six months, the first five months, the first four months of this upcoming season, we need goals from different places. We may be stuck. Uh, I mean, it could be a good stuck, but stuck with Aubameyang and Lacazette. 
and praying we can find a way to accommodate Pepe and Saka in the same team to get enough goals going around. So maybe it's Aubameyang, Pepe and Saka. Um, But Saka, again, has to come up a few notches before we can think of him as seven or eight goals a season. I don't think Aubameyang is going to be 25 goals a season. We're just miles off without an attacking midfielder who can add goals. Now, maybe this will be Smith's Rose year. Um, And, of course, you could just have a really creative player, uh, an Ozil who sets everybody else up and they score massively. But I don't think that's Smith Rowe on his own. I mean, there's injury concerns, fitness concerns, but mostly he's a young guy and you just can't assume. Uh, It's interesting uh, when you look at how many games people played last year in the Premier League. Nobody really got past 30. So there's eight games even your most busy player didn't play. So we're going to need somebody besides Smith Rowe as a creative. We just are, no matter how good a season he has. And I don't think we should assume he's going to have a blisteringly brilliant season. It's it's too much, a bit like the penalty scenario. You can't put too much on a young player. I don't think uh, Arteta thinks you can put too much on a, a young player as well. That hasn't been... Like these guys, their job as young players is to come in and take the steering wheel from a a slightly more experienced player or at least to rival them for it, but not to carry the burden. And I just I can't risk that. Um, Mm. I think it would be gross dereliction of duty if we don't get a very effective like had we gone for had we got Buendia. Great. Had we got Odegaard. Great. Uh, but if we don't get a war, uh, I think the Madison money is ridiculous. There's got to be other solutions. It doesn't have to be Madison for me. Mm. But a war, like there, there are creative players on the continent at distressed clubs that we can afford. There just must be. We can't just leave it to Smith Rowe. Um, uh, I can see other, like I really want the Ben White thing because I think that lets us play in a different way, a step up uh, center back. You know, more creative, more this, more that, more than the more the other. But I don't know how we play without attacking midfield options unless like if they've decided Saka can do that and that's how they're going to use him. Great. I still don't see the goals there, though, yet. Mm. It's funny, right? Because I think. I agree and I disagree in a sense. And and, and I'll say the sense that I disagree because that's obviously more more interesting. Um, I think part of believing that your path to success as a club is through the development of your young players is the acknowledgement that you have to trust that those young players are ready to start making a leap, right? Um, You know, can you... It's not always linear, right? I mean, I think Raheem Sterling's best season was like eight goals and seven assists, and then it was like 23 goals or something and 10 assists, something ridiculous. Like, can... Smith Rowe become a 10-goal, 10-assist guy next season? Like, I absolutely think he can. Will he? I have no idea. Could Saka be a 15-goal, 10-assist guy next season? He could. When you have really talented young players who you think could be elite, and I put Martinelli in that class as well, you you have two challenges. One is you don't want to block their access to playing time too much, and you also have to roll the dice that what you see in them is the potential for not just sort of linear development, but potentially exponential development. I'm willing to roll the dice on that. It's why but I like Smith the Rowe, How many shots a game does Smith Rowe take? He he takes like one shot a game. 
He's scored goals. I mean, he he did some goal scoring at Huddersfield. I, you know, I, the problem is, I, I get you, Paul, but I mean, he also isn't a forward, strictly speaking. I mean, if he were playing the Madison role, you know, or the Grealish role, or you know, whatever you want to call that, how many goals is that position supposed to provide, right? Um, I, don't- I love Smith Rowe, but he's miles away from the production that a top four challenging team with only one option. I mean... Uh, I'm all for Smith Rowe. Just in, I mean, just, just to be clear, Regard, J- Jack a... Grealish scored six goals last season. Yeah, six. And how many shots four, the eight. game does he? Well, six is good. Though. No, six, six is good. But, but but that's what I'm saying, right? We're not we're not asking Smith Rowe yeah. to step up and become a 16 goal guy. Like we're asking no, him we're to step for up and seven. Seven goals would be nice. Right, yeah. And so all I think all I was saying is part of trusting young players to be your path back to success is is expecting not linear development, but potentially exponential development because they t- it tends not to be linear, right? One season, they flash a little end product, and the next season, they go off. And that's... Yeah, but they announce the season. You don't say... You don't decide next year you're going to have a breakout season... They have a breakout season, and you think, "Holy crap!" Mm. <laughs> right? You, they need a player to come past. It was supposed to be William last year, by the way. <laughs> they, they, you know, they need. He needed to come past Odegaard this year. He needed to come past. By, by the way, whoever he yeah. had three goals last season in 160 minutes. Oh no, sorry, I, I take that back. That's no, I take that back. He in played the Premier 14, League. Yeah, he had two two goals in 1440 minutes um, in the Premier League. So. You know, again, and like, and you can't expect him to play more than twenty three hundred minutes is a lot in the league. So he might be up to three, three and a half, four goals on that measure. But, but like he might, he's still only taking about a shot, just over a shot per game, right? Yeah, I mean, about a shot a game. I mean, versus Grealish too. I, look, I don't want to get too in the weeds on like what does FB Ref tell me, but I, because I, I, I want to get Clive's take on this. I think, again, I totally. Agree with you, but this is why I, love I like Smith the throw, right? The, well, this is why I like the Awar move, Paul. Is Awar yeah. is going to be relatively inexpensive enough and on low, low enough wages and young enough also that, like, if Smith Rowe looks better and Awar isn't quite as good and Smith Rowe plays more, that's fine. What I worry yeah. is if you go 60 million, 140 grand a week on a 26 year old Premier League established star in that position, you start to get into a spot where you're like, well, I guess we could play Smith Rowe on the left and Martinelli won't play, but that's okay because we got to play Smith Rowe. Like, there is this weird balance, Clive, where our future. Can I just in say, mind, on yeah, a war, he's like three shots a game. No, he, he's minimum. he's an end product monster. I love him. I want yeah. him. Um, I, I think what I'm saying, Clive, is that on the one hand, I do not see a path to Arsenal being good unless Martinelli, Smith Rowe, and Saka are very good, as good as we think they can be, because we can't. We don't have the resources or or the head start to start rebuilding all those positions between Pepe, Martinelli, Smith Rowe, Saka. You know, Aubameyang, obviously, like, like there, there's talent there, and we need them to be as good as we think they are. So, I, we need the the difference is we literally don't have a central midfielder worthy of playing in the Premier League, in my view. We just don't. If Sack, if Shaka goes, it's party and guys who shouldn't be at the club. Whereas, if we had to roll out the the options we have at the other positions, I would take them. So, I guess I'll ask it to you two ways, Clive. Which is one, how do you balance? Trusting that your young players can make the leap and carry you where you want to go, versus not putting all of that on all that pressure on their shoulders and demanding that they do it right now. Um, I think those are hard things to balance. I really think they are. I mean, I don't mind the competition between Pepe and Saka. 
I think adding William into that group was was a bit too much. So how, how do you think we should balance that? Yeah, we shouldn't. I, I sort of agree, Paul. We, we need one more in that area. We, we do. If, if we have to lose a centre forward like Lacazette to make that happen and then promote Balogun up and then just use it that way. I, I'm, I just think there needs to be room to see these guys develop, but you can't develop them by overexposing them. You know, if you're overexposed, you can lose them. So I think we need to have somebody else in there. Obviously, the, the two for this discussion is obviously Madison or Oahu. Oahu has been playing more of a, a left eight, although we saw him playing on the left in the front three. I think he's quite flexible. I think he looks quite neat. He looks like a Man City player. Mm. If I look at him, he reminds me a little bit of Ferran Torres at Man City, but not. Torres is more developing into a forward now. So, um, I think our eye is a bit more multi-positional. He has those abilities. He just looks quite natural in most areas of the pitch. But I'm just not sure of his end product. Not end product, should I say. I'm not sure of his mentality and his ability to produce consistently. And and that's the same for all these players. They're young and we, we are expecting them to produce. And I think that's too much to put on them. So I do think we may need to spend in this position. For somebody that's done it, knows he can do it. And, and creates a different fear factor to the team and we bowl up other people's grounds. We can't roll up other people's grounds with, with a bunch of really high potential kids. I know that can change really quickly. Five good games and they suddenly become high potential superstars. But I just don't think we can do that. We need to add something to it. And to do that, we need to create room by sales. When I look at the team, I look at what what is the path to green? What is the path to us being different? What's going to make us all feel excited for the first game? Right? So, obviously, Ben White is one thing, and Paul touched on how that could make us change, how we play and where we play on the pitch. But the the next two-party player is the one I think is going to define us. Uh, I think what that player is and what type of player that is is going to tell us what type of team we want to be. So, if you just look at two players in Basuma and Neves, for example, Basuma I like... I like him because he fixes a lot of our problems in a negative way. He can cover the failings of some of our other players. He can cover around. He's really quick. I, I think but what he lacks for me is a, a on-the-ball personality to say, I'm going to now run this team. You know, And I think he's somebody that needs somebody like that next to him. And I, I just think that I can, if, if the reason why Arsenal may not be going for him for me, is he hasn't got that Seth Fabregas thing that says, give it to me, give it to me, give it to me. I'm going to get this running. He's somebody that reacts off the ball. Whereas Neves now is somebody, I think he's somebody that's more of a possession centre mid. He has got that metronomic, I want the ball type play. He has got the passes that brings everyone into play. And I think wherever that signing is, he's going to tell us what we want to be. Mm. And I've got a funny feeling it's going to be a Neves type signing. Because Arsenal want to be a more possession-based team higher at the pitch, and we're going to need different skill sets. So that's going to be interesting. The ten for me is key, Elliot. It's key to unlocking and protecting careers. It really is, and I, I'm not prepared to uh, give it up, mate. And it might cost. We might have to wear it. Your points on Iran, your points on the UK market, you previously made were absolutely right. It's probably the worst time to buy English players because they're so popular. But we we are where we are, and we need to to make that jump. And so we may need to swallow something 15, 20 mil too heavy to make people think Arsenal on the way back. And I think this might be the time to do it. Mm. I have 
I I have sort of lost my way, I think, Clive, in terms of understanding how Arsenal get back to the very top because we have a weird squad. There are young players that make me think we could be very good very quickly if they're as good as we think they are. And we have some older players that I am worried will start to not be as good as we would like them to be very quickly. And I don't know how you blend that, how you fix that. I I will say that I am encouraged by the age profiles of the players we're looking at. I'll finish with you on this, Tim, then. Um, I think that the most important business Arsenal have to do this window is the central midfield partner for Thomas Party. I don't Mm -hmm. know why you bother buying Thomas Party if you can't, see him as the you know what you're building the midfield around for the next three seasons. You spent big on him. He's in the heart of his prime. You have to surround him the right way. I would, if I had to roll the dice on the young talent I have at the top end of the pitch, I would roll the dice on the young talent we have at the back end of the pitch too. I mean, if it meant not you know going all out on the fee for, for Ben White, and it would have meant bringing Saliba in and having that group be Marie, Saliba, Gabriel, and, and holding, I would have, I would have lived with it. But it is that one piece, and I'm curious, assuming Shaka goes, can you see any path to a viable season for Arsenal without a really good solution? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's Elneny and... Willock. Willock Will, can, can't play in a double pivot. I, yeah, I, I yeah, mean, exactly. So, but- I'm, I mean, who... who who is it? It's li- the guy. Literally doesn't exist. Yeah. I don't. I don't even know how we how we make it work unless someone sees Smith Rowe dropping deeper. I, it is really, it is Again, it is a situation Aziz that becomes. An, as, I mean, Aziz. Let's put it this way: Would you say, Tim, that that is the position? I, I remember under Arsene Wenger, there was always the one position where, like, oh, he left us pretty thin there, and it always came back to bite him. If the season's going to be a disaster, that's the position where it all. That's the sinkhole, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. Just by dint of numbers, it's the most important one. You're right. Five correctly points out, by the way, Lakanga coming in becomes at least, you know, an option in that group. Yeah, Yeah, of course. And so you've got Lakanga. I mean, Elneny, he hasn't signed a new contract, has he? And he's got one year left. So he can leave on free. He's not worth, you know, he's not going to get anything as a sale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, it's not, it's not even cut and tried that he'll be here. Willock, I suspect we're going to wait and see what the midfield looks like closer to the end of the window um, before mate. Like, I don't think we're not going to sell him now because we don't have enough numbers. I think if they get other things done, if they get like a number 10 in a central midfielder, I think they'll sell Willock. But if they don't, they might just keep him for another year. Um, But yeah, definitely. But I think everything, um, you know, Clive and Paul have said about it kind of, being i mean it's such an important position anyway but just by dint of numbers and and the thing is i just think that this this is the one we we've really really got to get this this one right um because look smith rowe came in as our number 10 last season with very little experience and he just transformed the team um but the, and and because we just we just needed a number ten so badly, and I'm not you know Smithrow. Everyone knows I love Smithrow. He's brilliant, but you know it it didn't take much to like really improve in that position. This one, I think it, it's going to take like it's got to be the right person, like effectively because right we're replacing Jacko who plays every single game when fit. So that that's like a, that's 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 how important this is, and the signing of Jacko himself was probably not the right one in the end. I mean, look, he's been a regular for four and a half of his five seasons, but it 
did kind of coincide with Arsenal declining a little bit because just because you know Xhaka's a good player, but he's not like a great player, you know, mm-hmm. and and that that like that that position really really I think sets the sets the kind of tone for what your team is. You know, we we're talking about it with England earlier at the moment, like Declan Rice and Calvin Phillips are. are both good players and you're right they're good at what they do I tweeted during the Germany game though you can tell that England's midfielders play for West Ham and Leeds and Germany's midfielders play for Bayern Barca and Real Madrid mm. and um, and and that's what England are looking at here we're, we're looking for a really really important piece we're whatever you think about Xhaka in like Arteta's mind that's the most important position in the team and he showed that with the way he used Xhaka the way he spoke about him, um, so th- this is this is a crucial, crucial signing, and it really could, if we get it right, it could really start to bridge some of that gap to the top four. I really, really think that. Like, I, I don't think the right. Let's say we sign a right, we sell Bellerin, and we do sign a right back. I'm not sure that will happen this summer, but let's say we do that. Like, that that would be good. Don't get me wrong, but like, I think this is the type of signing. Where and and possibly this goes to number ten as well, but not quite to the same extent. This is the kind of right. Here's where we've got a real opportunity to drastically upgrade in a big position in the team and really, really start to turn the dial back towards those top four spots. And so I I do think that this is the most important piece of business Arsenal have to do, not just because of the fairly light numbers in midfield, just the importance of that position and we've got the other advantage that Thomas Partey is Arteta's player he bought him he wanted him so he gets to partner him with someone else that he wants and he bought and if he has his own central midfield then I think we start to know a lot more about Mikel Arteta and what he wants Mm, well said Uh, is there anybody that you're I mean I know you notorious for hating preseason so I, I, you know, and, and that like you, I think you once espoused on this very podcast, the idea that they shouldn't even be televised these games because they don't mean anything. And we, we read into them too much. I do love at least the chance to maybe see players who aren't going to play as big a role in the season and get a little, a little experience of who they are and what they're about. And in a season where we won't have Europe and there's even less minute, fewer minutes to go around. Is there anyone you're, you're curious to at least get a look at and see, and if not to, you know, tell you everything you need to know about them just for your own edification and interest. For, for these ones, no. Like, I, I think, basically, I think preseason has three stages, and, and you know, we know what exactly what the stages are, Scotland, USA, and London, um, and, and preseason is often planned like that. Like, these early preseason friendlies, honestly, I, I think nothing of that. Like, I'll watch tomorrow night. Um, but I think nothing of them at all. And the team looks very different, not least when you've got an international tournament and people come back at different times. Like the team that will play Hibs on Tuesday, I don't think will look anything like the team that plays like Tottenham on August the 8th. So I, I think, you know, preseason has those very key kind of all of those very visible three stages. So at this point for Hibs and Rangers, no, because I do think those games are meaningless beyond fitness. I think preseason, like the games, become more meaningful. I, I think really the and the, and then you know you've got that middle bit in the USA where some of the guys who are away at tournaments, uh, sorry, were away at the Euros, um, you know, will come like 
well, <laughs> unless we sell him, but people like Tierney, um, I was going to say Xhaka, but Tierney, Leno, they'll start to come back into those. But but really, it's those two in London against Chelsea and Spurs. I think that's when my interest kind of peaks a little bit more. I, I really, th- there's nothing really I'm looking forward to about the Hibs or Rangers. In fact, I, I won't see the Rangers game. Which but, is um, ironic because you're the one who goes around handing out the Ballon doors to 17-year-olds <laughs> on Twitter before anybody else has seen them so yeah yeah that 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 sounded slow you you sounded like you're making an accusation there paul the way you said that um, and <laughs> handing things out to 17 year olds 17 years old year olds <laughs> oh, on twitter oh, but <laughs> but i mean i i guess like over the whole pre-season i'd be interested to see how involved someone like miguel aziz is and again, you know, we just talked about how light we are in midfield. He's someone who should look at this preseason and say, right, I'm not going to be like the starting central midfielder on the first day, but I can, I can, you know, maybe think, make Arteta think, yeah, I can be the fourth choice or maybe this season the fifth choice or get myself a better loan deal. Like I think that kind of player who's right on the fringe of the first team squad. I think that's who preseason is really for. Um, and maybe um, Okonkwo as well, the goalkeeper, who it sounds like is going to be the third choice. Like, I, I think those are the guys that preseason's for. I'm really kind of excited, as dumb as it sounds, to get a look at Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. I oh. think the one really interesting thing when you hear people talking about our season this season, Saka, you know, making the leap. What could Martinelli be? Pepe looked good at the end of last season. What's Smith Rogan to develop into? Who's going to play with party party with an injury free season could help us tyranny. I mean, every player gets a mention, but not Obama. And he is our superstar player, our best player and a player who, if he can rediscover 2022, 20, 23 goal form can totally change what is possible for this team. But if he is now a 12 or 13 goal striker, we have a major freaking problem on our hands. And so I'll be very curious to see what kind of Aubameyang we see in preseason, how he's moving, how he's looking, you know, what the attitude is like. You love to read body body language. I mean, Paul, he's, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of wrap up here, but he is, he is sort of a sneaky, crucial part of whether we can do anything this season, isn't he? Yeah, but while I totally agree with your logic, you have picked the absolute worst player to judge on preseason. Right, because the most experienced pros don't really care about preseason, and they know it's just yeah. And I seem to remember last preseason, he looked like he didn't give a shit. None, like none. And then then went on to have a great season. Is is that right? Is that how that (laughs) happened? Because you may have undone your own point there. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, uh, but you know what I mean. He, I like, do know what you mean. He, yes, he they, they are the, the ones who need preseason who, the least. I agree with yeah. that completely. The only person who hates preseason more than Tim is Aubameyang. Mm. Um, so uh, I'm surprised Tim hates it. I, I like I fully get the it means absolutely nothing. But um, he, he does have that predilection for watching the young footballers. So mm. I, I suspect he overplays his hand a little bit there and uh, enjoys it like the rest of us. He just reads absolutely, he reads minus significance into it. But who am I to talk for somebody else apart from me? And I talk for everybody else. But uh, look, I, I'm for one, I'm in the camp that says 
Actually, I'm super geeked about preseason. I will read way too much into it. Sometimes it kind of, kind of pays off and somebody actually comes through. But, you know, we saw our Smith Rose, our Sackas. We saw Willock, who wasn't nearly as good in in actual season as what he could do in preseason, and yet appeared 44 times for the team. We had uh, Gwenduzi come from preseason, joining the team and being a starter at the kind of age Miguel Aziz is at. So, look, 97% of it doesn't happen after preseason. But, hey, what what's the point of being a supporter if you can't, uh, like, squeeze the last um, bit of lemon out of your overly squeezed lemon and I, enjoy the heck out of it? I, I thought Rio Miachi was going to be a star for us based on preseason. So, look, I've, <laughs> I've read way too much into things in my own right. Clive, who's who's the guy we should be we should be looking for? Taylor Hart, Aziz, who is it? Who's who's the guy who's going to nah, break Taylor through? Taylor Hart, oh, that'd be good. Well, we don't really need yeah. what he does yet, so maybe give him another season. <laughs> yeah, it's good to see these young players sign, like Conco and potentially Taylor Hart's about to sign. <clears throat> and that was not the case a little while ago, so that's good. And the player that I'm looking at is Balogun, actually. Mm. I want to see what he looks like. Uh, I I think he could, you know, well, we have hopes for these players, don't we? And let's have a look at a bit more consistent basis against an opposition that's going to move around a bit and to see where he fits in the pecking order and how he plays. So for me, when I look at these preseason games, I'm looking at how people play. You know, what what's their default game? What do they like doing? And then we can start thinking about combinations later in the year, you know. And, you know does Balogun want to post up all the time? Does he want to run down the sides? Can he carry from the right and the left? We know he can carry from the left. Can he carry from the right? These type of things. There's a young centre-half called Omar Rekic, um, Tunisian player who actually had made his full Tunisian debut. And he's on tour. I've never seen him play. So we get a chance to see a centre-half play. I won't mind seeing that other French boat play, Saliba. I wonder what he's like. It would be nice if we could see him play. So I think there are people out there on the fringes that have absolutely been killing themselves because they want to position themselves within the squad. And I think that's the stuff that's exciting. The established pros that take all the cash out of the club, we know what they're like. They're looking after their bodies and they're making sure they're ready for the the key London games that Tim said earlier. So, But those young players, we get a chance to scout them. And I think that's, that's going to be the fun this week. Yeah, well, I think in light of the fact that Arsenal play tomorrow, we can knock this 90 minutes on the head and turn around and do it again real soon. So let's leave it there. Uh, thanks to everyone for putting up with our analysis of uh, socio-political situations, which I'm sure is what you tune in for, but sometimes the uh, the circumstances call for it. So uh, hopefully they call for it less and the football calls for uh, analysis more. Tim's on Twitter. Stoberto, thank you, Tim. My pleasure as always. Clive's on Twitter. Clive PFC, thank you, Clive. Thank you very much. Paul's on Twitter. Pause my pants. Thanks, pause. Ooh, are we getting an Arsenal 10 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Good, good. I'm just checking. Leave it, leave it with me, mate. I got you. Right. I got this one. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, yeah, look, if you, Lukanga and Tavares look like they're going to be our first two signings, and we just happen to have a scouting video of both of them, and they're together in one place on our Patreon. Go there. And if you haven't gone to avpodcastshop.com yet to buy some kind of Saka thing because you love Saka or to buy something for Clive because you love Clive or Tim because you love Tim or me because you feel bad for my sad, pathetic life. Like, whatever the case is, go there because this stuff is awesome. It's just awesome. Anyway, uh, we love you. And as Paul astutely pointed out, we will talk to you after Arsenal 10, Hibs nil.
Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.